to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. As we uh, make our way through this prophetic book of Zechariah, we have arrived now at one of the more difficult sections of the prophecy. In fact, Zechariah 11 and probably 13 is, I think, what Pastor Daniel had in mind when I told him I was going to preach through Zechariah, and he said, really? John MacArthur estimates that Zechariah 11 is one of the more challenging, if not the most challenging, chapters of the Bible. And yet, I trust that by God's grace, as we read this section of Scripture, um, His Spirit will speak to us, that we will be edified by what we read. So let's begin just by reading all of Zechariah chapter 11, all 17 verses, even though we'll primarily be looking at the first 11 verses this week. Zechariah chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest that has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staves, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Then I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter that lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This is a difficult and perplexing passage of Scripture. And yet... I do believe that it shall become more clear. One of the difficulties of this passage is, if you remember this section that we've been in of Zechariah, starting in chapter 9, beginning with the burden of the word of the Lord, 
is the final section of the book, the two burdens of the word of the Lord. So chapters 9 through 11 is one burden, and then if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, it begins the burden of the word the Lord concerning Israel. So we're in one section, and yet decidedly, chapters 9 and 10 speak about God saving Israel, God's protecting Israel, God's raising up a good shepherd. In fact, last week we saw the promises of, of Judah being strengthened, the Messiah coming, of them conquering their foes. And so when chapter 11 begins with judgment and woes and roaring flames and howling shepherds and lions and trees. It comes kind of suddenly. What we see in chapter 11 is after dealing with the rest of the nations now, Zechariah is turning and speaking about future events for Israel. And again, these were not entirely clear to him in their distinction as we see them. Zechariah has told us the Messiah will come, right? We saw that. Leap for joy, your king comes mounted on a donkey, he brings salvation, and lowly and humble is he. And so Zechariah has already prophesied, the Messiah will come, the Messiah will bring salvation, the Messiah will deliver Israel, the Messiah will strengthen the house of Judah so that they trample down their foes. And this week, we're going to see the Messiah will come, and he will be rejected, and you will be judged. I'm guessing for Zechariah's audience, that, that contrast, that juxtaposition just as it is for us upon initially reading it, can be difficult. Now, we know those things are both true. The Messiah came, and he was rejected. The Messiah came, and Israel was brutally judged. The Messiah came, and he brought salvation. The Messiah will come, and he will strengthen and save the house of Israel. And so there is a juxtaposition. In fact, the beginning of chapter 11 is the most poetic, the highest poetic part of the book. And and what we're about to see in chapter 11 is a drama, is a drama. Hebrews 11, 1, Hebrews 1, 1, I'm sorry, speaks about how long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And if you think about it, God has spoken to the prophets in many ways. Sometimes there's these direct oracles, go say, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes the prophets come and that's how they speak. Sometimes God writes with his own finger, like he did the Ten Commandments, and gave that to Moses to take to the people. And one of the more unusual and strange ways that God speaks through the prophets, has spoken to the prophets, is through sign acts. But they're there, if you think about it. God tells Ezekiel to um, lie on one side for a certain period of time. And then lie on another side for a certain period of time is a sign to Israel. Ezekiel does a bunch of these. Ezekiel's told to bury his underwear and dig it up. I mean, it gets weird. You think of Hosea, probably the most extreme and graphic sign act, marrying a prostitute, buying her back from prostitution, showing his love to her so that Israel could see God's love to his unfaithful people. And here, that's exactly what we have. We have, a, we have a drama, the terrible drama of the true shepherd's rejection. And, and the drama unfolds really in two acts. We're going to look at most of the first act today. Um, the, the first act begins with the drama in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, become a shepherd of the flock. The second act is in verse 15. The Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. And... It begins with this chorus of judgment, unexpectedly. The height of the poetic section of the book, the, the most exalted prose and poetry here 
in the first three verses just announcing judgment. And so we're going to begin looking at the first three verses, the ruination, that is a word, I assure you, the ruination of the false shepherds. The ruination of the false shepherds. And I chose that word because that word ruined, at least in the ESV, appears three times. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. The ruination of the false shepherds. And I think, I think the contrast here is meant to catch us by surprise. Like I said, we've been going through chapters 9 and 10, and God's going to bless, God's going to strengthen, God's going to protect, God's going to preserve Israel. And all of a sudden, judgment, divine judgment, on the land of Israel from north to south. It's kind of like, and if I can use a dramatic analogy, sometimes in movies, if you've seen a movie, um, a movie can begin with what is sometimes referred to as a cold open. What a cold open is, is when a movie begins and you, you sit down, and sometimes when you begin a movie, you see the big MGM lion, and then there's maybe a title sequence with the director's name, and, and it's basically gearing you up for what you're about to see, preparing you. There's some music setting the mood. And so by the time the images come to the screen, you, you've got some idea of what you're going to see. Other movies just begin in the thick of it. In fact, a cold open oftentimes will show you what's taken place, and the rest of the movie has to explain how we got here. You, you've seen that before. You, you start a movie, you start a TV show, and after seeing a sequence you don't fully understand, it'll say, three days ago. And then the rest of the movie sort of catching up, right? You understand the concept? That's kind of like what's going on here. There was this chorus of judgment. And the reader is meant to be surprised. Where did this come from? And the rest of the chapter is going to explain how God can announce suddenly and so unexpectedly this judgment on Israel. What has taken place or what will take place to warrant such terrible judgment? And it's judgment of the land from from north to south. It starts in Lebanon, which is the fringe edge of Israel's northern borders, We know that Israel is actually meant by this because Lebanon, just a few verses earlier, is included in where he's bringing the people back to. If you look back at 10.10, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. So Lebanon is this hill country, um, sometimes seen as distinct from Israel, but really bleeding over into the northern edge of, of Israel from Assyria. And, and in this picture, Israel is, is being pictured as a fortified city, with Lebanon as the, as the chief gates. They've got these mountainous, heavily wooded um, forests protecting them from their northern enemies. And here it opens up with, open the doors, O Lebanon, the fower, fire may devour your cedars. The other, the other word repeating three times in here is this wail, this lament. Verse 2, wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. For the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan. For the thick or literally impenetrable forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions from the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And that movement starting in the, the wooded mountainous regions of Lebanon, burning, starting with the biggest trees then working downwards, then to the, the shepherding hill lands, the shepherds are, are, are crying out in dismay. And finally, all the way down to the thickets of the Jordan where the lions roamed, 
from top to bottom, from mountain to river bottom, judgment, fire, ruination, and wailing. We don't know why. In this, in this opening three verses, no hint is given as to why. All we know is a horrific, devastating, total north-to-south judgment is announced that will result in the forests wailing, the inhabitants wailing, the animals wailing. It's bad. It is bad. Anguish and wailing from all of its inhabitants. And so we've got to ask the question before we move much further, what is this talking about? Now remember, Zechariah's written to people who've returned from the Babylonian captivity. And and at this point, we sort of have to jump ahead a little bit and decide what, what are we talking about? What is this referring to? And one of the things we know is if we go down to verse 12 in this drama of the shepherd, then I said, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. They weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this lordly price at which I was priced by them. Now, to what event does that refer? Judas, right? So we know that at least in part, and I, and I think really in totality, this, this drama, this, this word picture, this sign act, is meant to portray something about Jesus' rejection, which would then mean that the judgment that comes as a consequence would be judgment subsequent to or after Jesus' rejection. I think, and this is your blank C here, I think the fulfillment this is talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In fact, as we go through chapter 11, there'll be more explanation, more unpacking of this destruction. We're going to get more information, more of the backstory, and then more information about the judgment, and then some more of the backstory of why, why this judgment would come. But the ruination of the false shepherds. There's, there's one thing that's absolutely clear in the first three verses, from top to bottom, at every level, whether it's the people, whether it's the agriculture, whether it's the animals, there will be judgment, devastation, and wailing. And what we know about the siege of Jerusalem is that in 70 AD, well, actually in 66 AD, Titus um, mounted a siege in Jerusalem that lasted four years. In total, he leveled over a 1,000 towns and villages. Um, the, the Roman historian who was on site, Josephus, estimates that a million Jews were killed and crucified and 100,000 taken captive. Now, some have disputed those numbers as large. He was there. He was actually hired by the Romans to try to um, treat for peace with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And as we get further down at the description, I think we'll, we will see that this is what this is talking about, this judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem, where from top to bottom, they, they, they were scattered. For 2,000 years, Israel was not a national people group. They were among the nations as, as judgment came in in 70 AD. And as we go further, I, I think we'll see why that fits Better. But when you're dealing with prophecy, and admittedly a difficult chapter, the, the best I can say is it sure looks like this is what this is talking about. There's been no other event in Israel's history since Zechariah's time that comes close, that comes close to this, other than the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So with that, let's dive into the drama itself, the rejection of the true shepherd. The rejection of the true shepherd. Now, the first act of this drama really goes all the way down to verse 14. And there just is not enough time this morning to cover that ground. So not next week. I'm, I'm going to um, be out of, out of the state this coming week. 
Um, Pastor Daniel will be preaching next week. But in two weeks, we'll pick up the second half of this drama. So we're making it most of the way through Act 1, but not all the way. The rejection of the true shepherd. And I titled it that because it's meant to be a double entendre. What we're going to see in this passage is both Israel's rejection of the shepherd and then the shepherd's rejection of Israel. So we're going to see the, sh- the, the rejection of the true shepherd, both him being rejected and him in turn rejecting. And it begins with a commission from the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, verse 4, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So God tells him to, to put on the accoutrements, the gear of a shepherd. This is where it becomes a sign act. Zechariah probably didn't normally dress like a shepherd, but here he does. Later we're going to see he picks up shepherd's staffs as he, as he acts out a future event. We're going to see that tied to this shepherding and how he has responded to and what he does is the reason for this judgment announced in the first three verses. So first we see his flock and the shepherd's doomed flock. We're going to look at that first. Why are they doomed? Why described that way? It's kind of a discouraging way. Here, become a shepherd of a doomed flock. Well, we see in this passage why they're doomed. Become a shepherd of the doomed flock. First, those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. Second, those who sell them, say, blessed be the Lord, I've become rich. Their own shepherds have no pity on them. You see that there is slavery and slaughter from without. Those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. I think this probably refers to their, their foreign oppressors. In Jesus' day, the Romans ran Israel with an iron hand. We read about um, Pilate, one of the things he did in Luke 13.1. Some of those who were present at that time told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate took some Jews who had displeased him, and he killed them, and he mingled their blood with the sacrifices, and he thought nothing of it. Their their foreign oppressors bought them and slaughtered them and thought nothing of it. That's part of the reason they're a doomed flock. They're in a difficult situation. They have these these outsiders who purchase them and think nothing of, of using them for their own means. Slavery and slaughter from without. But worse than that, betrayal and hypocrisy from within. So that's, that's what those who buy them act like. But look at this. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. And whenever you see the Lord in all caps, that is God's special covenant name. The nations may know about Elohim, God, but only Israel knows of Yahweh, the covenant God. So when somebody says, blessed be the Lord, this is an insider This is an Israelite. This is somebody who who claims the name of Yahweh. And so what's going on here is makes this even worse is those who sell them, not only sell them, but have the audacity to do it, blessing the living God. It's the height of hypocrisy and betrayal. Their own shepherds sell them and then turn around and say, praise God, I've got some money. Hallelujah. That's the equivalent today. It's horrific. Horrific hypocrisy. These shepherds who should be tending the flock devour the flock. They sell the flock for their own ends. This is the state of the flock. This is why it can be described as a doomed flock. Now, I want to take a minute or two and give you a vivid picture of this. I want you to get the, the level of the betrayal of, of, the, of these would-be shepherds. Keep, keep your finger here and turn to John 10. John 10, verse 
Turn to John chapter 10. Actually, 9. Sorry, John 9. Well, we'll look at 10 briefly. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had set themselves up, them and the scribes and the Sadducees, the priests, as the leaders, the shepherds of Israel. They were the ones who said, we, we will tend to the Lord's flock. Self-appointed, they got all of the, the accoutrements, they got all of the, the honor of being shepherds, they wore the right clothes, they, they got honor from the people, and yet Jesus was furious with no one more than them. And one of the things that really popped out to me is the connection between John 9 and John 10. I, I truly think that the chapter division, um, beginning where 10, 1 is, is, a, is poorly placed. I'd place it a little further. In John's gospel, there's a pattern that emerges when you read through it of the miracles of Jesus. What happens is Jesus works a miracle, and you get a description of the miracle, and then you get a discourse or discussion that follows it. So in John 5, Jesus heals the man who's the paralytic, and he heals him on the Sabbath, and you get a couple of verses describing that, and then you get all of the I and the Father are one discourse with the Pharisees arguing with him. Likewise, in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and immediately following is the I am the bread of life discourse. The whole rest of the chapter is a discussion that springboarded off of this sign miracle. And yet here in chapter 9, Jesus does a miracle. He heals the man born blind, and the pattern gets broken a little bit. Because instead of immediately going to what Jesus says about it, what we see is how the leaders, how the would-be shepherds react. And they interrogate this man. They interrogate him. Absolutely interrogate him. Look at 9.24. So for the second time they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're trying to establish the identity of the man who healed him. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, though, I was blind. Now I see. You see, this guy that Jesus healed isn't even yet a Christian. He, he, Jesus drew himself after the performing the miracle. The man doesn't fully know who he is, and the, and the Pharisees are upset. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind. Now I see. They said to him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Notice the, the, the pride and the hypocrisy. You are disciples of him. We, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man who had been blind answered, This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man knows his Bible well enough to know there are no Old Testament accounts of the blind receiving their sight. This is the first recorded time in Israel's history this has happened. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Literally the word in Greek, they de-synagogued him, or ex-synagogued him. So, this new little baby sheep of God's, who had lived this terrible life being blind, gets his sight. 
He hasn't fully put all the pieces together of who Jesus is. What he needs is someone to shepherd him. He needs someone to guide him. He needs someone to teach him. He needs someone to deal with him gently. He goes to Israel's would-be shepherds. Rather, they send for him. And they interrogate him once. And they interrogate him a second time. And they revile him. And they scorn him. And they curse him. You are born in utter sin. And they cast him out. That is how Israel's would-be shepherds tend to the flock. Verse 35, how does a good shepherd respond? Jesus heard that they had de-synagogued him. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? This man hasn't yet come to faith in Jesus. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and as he was speaking to you, He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, understand how Jesus turns the topic. Here's Jesus, the good shepherd. He loves the flock. He loves God's flock. His heart is like God's heart, passionate for his flock. Here's this new little baby sheep, and he goes to Israel's shepherds, and he's confused. He doesn't know who his Messiah is. He just, I just, I was blind, and now I see, and they revile him, and they mock him, and they kick him out of the religious life of the people. It makes sense now Why Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, are are we also blind? Jesus, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say we see your guilt remains. Now notice, there's no break in the text. There's no five days later. What he says about the good shepherd is the discourse that attaches to the miracle. This is why I don't like this chapter division. We get a nice division back at, at, at 1022 at the time of the Feast of the Dedication. Now we're jumping ahead. So just keep reading. He's still talking to the Pharisees. They've still just kicked out this man. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. God didn't make you shepherds. You made yourself shepherds and you're thieves and robbers. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they, will, they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him. They do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. The them, of course, is the Pharisees he was just talking to. Back to Zechariah 11. Why is this flock doomed? Well, they're under the iron rule of foreign dictators who oppress them and slaughter them. Worse yet, their own shepherds devour them. Their own shepherds use them for their own ends. They don't tend to the flock. They don't care for the sheep. They use them as tools for their own purposes. A little later in John's gospel, we read in John chapter eleven forty eight, the Pharisees reasoning what to do with Jesus. If, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Pharisees had co-opted out, sold out to the Romans. They'd entered into agreement for some peace and they were afraid if too much turmoil got raised, the Romans would come and take away their place and take away their nation. They didn't care about the sheep. They cared about their positions. They cared about everything other than the flock. So when Zechariah is told by the Lord, become the shepherd of a flock doomed to slaughter, this is very much the situation that Jesus 
walks into when he begins his ministry. This is very much the flock he has to tend. Slavery and slaughter from without, betrayal and hypocrisy from within, and finally, in verse 6, divine judgment from above. Divine judgment from above. And here we get a further expanding of this judgment. Verse 6, For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they will crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So the, the, the ruin and judgment described in the first three verses gets expanded upon a little further. And what a, what a horrific statement that the Lord God would say, I, I will have no more pity. No more pity. I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. And when God runs out of patience, when God runs out of grace, when God runs out of compassion and pity, we run out of hope. I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they will crush the land. Now, there is a hint in this passage as to why. When we, when we go down to the next paragraph, we'll see more clearly why. We still don't know why this judgment is coming. It is a judgment where north to south Israel's ravaged. It's a judgment where every layer of society, the trees, the animals, the people will wail. It's a judgment where God will not have pity. A judgment where neighbor will fight with neighbor. But we get one clue as to what's going on here with that phrase, each into the hands of his king. Remember, Israel has no king at this time. So what does that phrase, his king, mean? I, I think it's a reference to the king you've chosen. If you remember in John 19, these haunting words, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. I will give them into the hands of their king, which is exactly what happened in 70 AD. The Romans. God sent their Messiah, their king to them. Will you receive? Will you herald? Will you have your Messiah? Nope. We have no king but Caesar. And I'm just going to read a brief excerpt. I had to talk to Pastor Daniel this week about what to actually read from Josephus. It is so horrific and terrible, the account of the siege of Jerusalem, that I just picked one paragraph that I thought would be, would be appropriate. In case you're tempted to think this language of judgment is, is hyperbole. It wasn't as bad as all that. Far worse. The first siege of Jerusalem ended in 70 AD, the decisive event of the first Jewish-Roman war. The besieged and conquered city of Jerusalem, which had been occupied by its Jewish defenders in 66 AD. So Titus begins a siege in 66 AD. It takes four years because Jerusalem was a heavily fortified city with walls. But Titus was smart. And every year during those feasts where Jews would come, he'd let them in. He just wouldn't let them out. And so every year during the feasts, more and more Jews entered into Jerusalem. And what happens? Famine conditions happen. More and more mouths to feed. One brief account, as we read about here, brother turning on brother, falling into each other's hands. This is Josephus, who is on site. Now those who perished by the famine in the city, the number was prodigious. And the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, a war was commenced presently. 
And the dearest friends fell a-fighting one another about it, snatching from each other the most miserable supports of life. Nor would men believe that those who were dying had no food, but the robbers would search them when they were expiring, lest anyone should have concealed food and counterfeited dying. I will have no pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. Behold... I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king and they will crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. And then we move on. We'll get a little further explanation for how this could be. We've seen the true shepherd's doomed flock. Now we're going to see the true shepherd's brief ministry. Verses 7 to 11. Five points here. Five points as we look at this ministry. Now we're going to start to really understand why. Why would God have no pity on Israel anymore? Why would he let them fall into such destruction? So I became the shepherd of a flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. Now the ESV has that very, I disagree, I think poor translation, sheep traders. If you have the New American Standard, or the New King James, or the King James, or the NIV, you have something like the weak of the flock or the despised of the flock. I, I think that is the better translation that rather than the this, this sheep traders, he becomes the shepherd of a flock, even the weak or despised of the flock. The shepherd's brief ministry. First, he tends to the weak of the flock. He tends to the weak of the flock. He comes to the flock, but in particular, he ministers to those who are weak. I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered, even to the weak of the flock, And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. This is, again, exactly, exactly what the Lord Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 to 13, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are weak. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus comes and he shepherds the flock, particularly the weak, the people who identify themselves as weak, the people who are willing to recognize their poverty, their sickness, their frailty. Of course, there's none actually more weak than the Pharisees, but Jesus goes to those who are poor in spirit. Think of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or 9.36, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Zechariah modeling, acting out the ministry of the Messiah to come, the true shepherd. He tends for the sheep, and he tends with two staves, two, two rods. You think of you know, Psalm, the Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The shepherd has a staff, these two staves. One is called favor, the other is called Union. And this is basically saying what, how he shepherds. Does he shepherd with harshness and severity? Does he shepherd slaughtering as he goes? No, he shepherds with favor, the Lord's favor. Shepherds with kindness. Those in his flock experience the Lord's sh- favor. He shepherds with unity and union. John 10 16, Jesus speaking about the flock he's to gather. He says, there'll be one flock. I have many other sheep to gather, but there'll be one flock. 
uniting his sheep together. And he shepherds them. He's a good shepherd. He's a true shepherd. He serves the sheep. He's, he's not arrogant. He's not proud. He gets down and he, he deals with those who most need ministry, the weak, the broken, the despised. But not only that, not only does he tend the weak of the flock, point two, he destroys the corrupt shepherds quickly. So there's a shepherding, a protecting, a feeding, a nourishing aspect. There's also a protecting, offensive aspect to his shepherding ministry. Notice he says in verse 8, in one month I destroyed the three shepherds. Now this, one little phrase, has got over 40 different people. Who are these three shepherds? I don't know. I got an idea. I, I got an idea. I think the three shepherds probably reference the three offices in Israel, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And in Jesus' day, the best representatives of those, because there is no king, would probably be the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees. But I think the way we figure it out is, okay, if Zechariah is portraying a shepherd who then battles other shepherds, and we know he's portraying Jesus, what shepherd candidates does Jesus battle? Well, it's certainly the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, right? Keep, keep your thumb here. Turn in your Bible to Matthew 23. The New American Standard here says he annihilated them. <laughs> this is severe. He cut them off. And he does it quickly. That phrase for in one month. This wasn't a long siege. In very short order, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, destroys, annihilates, cuts off these false, corrupt shepherds. He destroys them. Look at Jesus in, in Matthew 23. Pick it up in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in those days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent, able to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, our author, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Did Jesus do battle? Did he light up? Did he annihilate his opponents? Yes, he did. He did it publicly in the sight of the peoples. If you keep reading through the Gospels, they had nothing to say. He silenced them. They had no response. The good shepherd tends to the flock. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. And he attacks ruthlessly and relentlessly those who would attack the flock. He destroys the flock's corrupt shepherds quickly. 
So how, how does the flock then receive him? How does the flock then receive him? And this is the tragedy, and I think now we begin to see clearly why. Why this judgment comes. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Now, some of your translations might make it seem like he's speaking still about the shepherds. He, he's not. He's not. The ESV here, I think, makes the movement more clear. He, he's talking about the flock. Look at, verse, look at verse, keep reading. Look at verse 9. I became impatient with them. They also detested me, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. Who is he speaking to? He's not speaking to the shepherds. The shepherds he battles with would not recognize him as a shepherd. It would be meaningless for him to say to the three shepherds he just destroyed, I won't be your shepherd anymore. They're dead. They're destroyed. He can't be. This is the flock. So working backwards in verse 8, in one month I destroyed the three shepherds, period. But I became impatient with them. They also detested me. So I said to them, I will not be your shepherd. The good shepherd tends to the weak of the flock. The good shepherd fights victoriously, destroying their enemies, destroying the would-be shepherds. And he is detested by the flock he serves. He is detested by the flock he serves. Read it earlier, but I'll... I'll read it again. John 19, 14 to 16. That was the day of the preparation for Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they, meaning all the assembled Jews, cried, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I then crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate earlier had offered to release Barabbas, offered to release Jesus. The people would rather have Barabbas than Jesus. Did they value him? Oh, for a time, for a time while he was feeding them, while he was working miracles, while everything was nice, while there was no cost. They liked Jesus. They cheered for him when he came in. When they had to choose their team, when push came to shove, when it might cost something, they detested him. They rejected him. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear. That's, that's the horror. He comes and he serves the sheep. And yes, we understand the shepherds hate him. The shepherds who are false don't like being called out. But the sheep as well ultimately turn on him, detest him. So point four, he abandons the flock to his fate. This is now finally the explanation for why God will have no mercy, why this judgment will come so ruthlessly, devastatingly. The shepherd looks to the ones who detest him, and he says, he became impatient with them, and they had detested him. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. I'm not going to protect you. Judgment's coming, and the ones who are going to die, they're going to die. The ones who are going to be destroyed, they're going to be destroyed. I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to get in the way. You don't want me to be your shepherd? I won't be your shepherd anymore. You don't like my shepherding, he says? That's fine. I won't be your shepherd. And even though we can see the wolves coming, he's not going to stop it. 70 AD comes, and it is absolutely brutal. He talks about people devouring one another's flesh. 
There's, there's one account in Josephus I decided not to read. I thought it was too graphic. It, it happened during the, the siege and famine in Jerusalem. Horrifically happened. The judgment that fell upon that nation for rejecting their Messiah. Let me, let me read you one or two passages where Jesus says something very similar. In Luke 19, Luke 19, 41 to 44, when he drew near, we think of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, as this grand event. You realize there are tears in Jesus' eyes as he's coming down. He's not celebrating. Now, all of Jerusalem's celebrating. They're laying out the palm branches. They're singing Hosanna. Jesus, when he drew near the city, saw it, and he wept. There's great irony in, in Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, your enemies are going to set up a siege, and they're going to take you apart brick by brick, stone by stone. They're going to take you and your children, all because you didn't recognize who I was, all because you didn't know the time of your visitation. We're a little later in Luke 21, Jesus speaking. When you see Jerusalem sound, surrounded by armies, then know that his desolation has come. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country enter into it. Let not those in the country enter into it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus predicts this same judgment. Woe, woe to you, woe to you, because they rejected their Messiah. There's still a glimmer of hope here. Let's, let's, let's finish up. I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So he takes his first shepherding tool, favor God's favor, breaks it, it's gone. Israel, is Israel going to be a favored people in God's sight? Not now. Are they going to receive any protection? Not now. Is Israel going to get any divine provision? Sparing, not now. From 70 AD to the 1940s, Israel stopped being a people, were scattered, and their history, even in that scattering, is one of ceaseless persecution and judgment, culminating in the prison camps of World War II. It's clear the protection that God had afforded this people before. Now, he has preserved them, and he will preserve them, but he has not protected them as he once did. Till the time of the Gentiles is complete. Abandons them to their fate. But there is one hint, hint of, of grace and mercy here. And again, the ESV talks about the sheep traders. It's not the sheep traders. It's the spies. It's the weak of the flock. It was nullified in that day. And the weak of the flock who are watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. He is received by the weakest sheep. I put weakest in quotations because these are... The sheep who realized their poverty. And, and there was a remnant in Jesus' day who saw and understood. There's a remnant of a, a few thousand at Pentecost who believed. There were those who even in this judgment, who even in this destruction, it clicked, they understood, and they were saved. 
which is, which is one of the great things about our God. Even in his judgment, he's saving. When God judges, unless it's you he's judging, and it's a judgment to death, he's always an invitation for others to repent and believe. So think of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, God raises up, and God epically destroys him in part so that Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, hundreds of miles away might hear of it and come to faith. Right? You ever think of that? Even in in God's judgment on Pharaoh that looks so severe, there is mercy for others. God's judgment on others is always his invitation to us to to repent and believe. Always. He is received by the weakest of his sheep. Turn, Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. I've said this before, there are many, there's no one who is too weak, too feeble, too foolish, too sinful to be saved by Christ, to be received by Christ, to receive him. There's no one here who is too weak, too foolish, too sinful, that Jesus cannot be your savior, that you cannot be forgiven, that you cannot be reconciled with God through the blood of Christ. There's no one. There are many who are too strong, too smart, too wise, too wealthy to be saved. And Paul writes this. It's the weak of the sheep. It's the most despised of the flock who believe. And he writes about us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18. Let's read to the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach Save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, my brothers. Which is to say, what part of the flock were you? Consider your calling, my brothers. Not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The good shepherd comes. The good shepherd tends to the flock and he he feeds them and he, he deals tenderly with these weak despised sheep, and he battles on their behalf, and he fights their would-be shepherds, and he, he destroys them quickly. And the totality of the flock detests him. And so he delivers them over to their judgment. He abandons them to their fate. He shows no mercy on them. But even in that judgment and even in that tragedy, he is believed upon by the weakest of the sheep. Look at the end of verse 
11. They were watching me and they knew that it was the word of the Lord. And the challenge for us, the question for us is what will we make of this? As we get to look back with, with our hindsight, what do we see? Do we see the word of the Lord? Do we see the good shepherd or do we see something foolish and detestable? There's no one who is too weak, too sinful, too foolish to be saved. There are many who are far too strong and noble. Would that we would learn the lesson of the tragedy, the drama, the true shepherd's rejection. Let's pray. Pray. Lord God, what terrible, terrible judgment awaits those who reject gift of your son. You sent your son to your people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And you devastated them with righteous judgment. But John's gospel continues. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to as many as do receive him. He gave them the right to become children of God. And so, Lord, would that we would learn Israel's lesson. Would would that we would receive our true shepherd. As your prophet has commanded us, rejoice greatly. Our king comes on a donkey. He came humbly. Let us not stumble over the offense of the cross. Let us not despise the one who you sent to bear our sins. Lord, we rejoice knowing you are not done with your people. You will ultimately restore Israel, but... Oh, Lord, what terrible judgment was poured out on those who put to death the author of life. And, Lord, we know that there but the grace of God go, we ourselves. So, Lord God, help us to rejoice, to honor, to cherish, to praise and exalt the good shepherd. Help us not to grumble at the use of his rod in our lives, but to rejoice that we are shepherded, we are loved, we are children. That you do show pity on us that you do not leave us over to our fate. For we are those who have fled to your Son for salvation. And in that salvation we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace.